chapter 11 is the perfect flow from chapter 10. It's not thrown in there randomly after a genealogy in chapter 10, and then there's another genealogy coming up as well. The Tower of Babel is perfect, perfectly situated here. So uh, I got some more parallels for you, and I took these parallels again from that great little introductory book from John Bergsma, Bible Basics for Catholics. And what he pointed out here is that the Tower of Babel story is the parallel to the sons of God and daughters of men story back in chapter 6. So if you remember in the last lecture, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were fair. They intermarried. This is the good line and the bad line, intermarrying. Now that's what we're going to see here. These two genealogies we just studied in the Table of Nations are now going to intermarry. So look at these four parallels here that I um, borrowed uh, from Dr. Bergsma, and they're laid out in their notes. There are two creation accounts right? The original creation narrative, and now you have the flood as the new creation narrative. And we discussed that previously. B, there are two falls from grace, right? Adam's forbidden fruit and Noah's drunkenness from the fruit of the vine. We just looked at that as well. C, there's widespread sin that results after the falls from grace. You've got the intermarrying of the, the line of Seth and the line of Cain. And now you're going to have and see the intermarrying between the line of Shem and the line of Ham. Okay, so there's a universal corruption of man because of this widespread sin before the flood versus this what we're going to see, the prideful arrogance and the sinfulness of those people at the Tower of Babel. But God responds both times very differently, but in both times God responds. He needs to handle the problem. In the first response, of course, it's the worldwide punishment and the flood. Now we're going to see, because he swore he would not destroy the whole earth, what he's going to simply do is scatter all peoples at Babel. Okay? All right, so let's look at this. Let's read here a chapter 11. Uh, well, actually, just keep in mind, let me just reread chapter 10, verses 8 through 10. Remember, it is, you know, Cush became the father of Nimrod, who was the first on earth to become a mighty man. And then Nimrod goes along and founds a city in Babel, in the land of Shinar. That's where we are now. So let me read chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. It says, Now the whole earth had one language and few words. And as men migrated from the east, they planted a, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a, make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad on the face of the whole earth. All right, we can stop right there here. Okay, so, wow, lots to unpack. You got these descendants of Ham, okay, specifically Nimrod, right, this king who founds this city, and they say in three ways. First, let us build a city for ourselves. Let us make a name for ourselves. Let's break this down. What, what does this mean here? Number one, remember that to call upon the name of the Lord means worship, means intimacy with God, walking with God. We saw that back in chapter 4, verse 26, how Noah and Seth, they, their line, they call upon the name of the Lord, right? So these folks here at Babel, they are making a name for themselves. They're not worshiping God. They're worshiping essentially themselves in, in this prideful rebellion, 
All right, they're worshiping their own name instead of or in place of the name of God. And they want to make a name for themselves. So that first point is this is rebellion against God. They're not calling upon the name of the Lord. They are making a name for themselves. So that's rebellion, arrogance, pridefulness against God. But it's, it's more than that. It's also against Shem. Because the Hebrew word for name is Shem. They want to make a Shem for themselves. So this means that they are rebelling against the true Shem. Noah's firstborn son, remember I explained he is the bearer of the line of promise, the line of blessing that comes from Adam. They want his authority. The same parallel we just saw with what Ham tried to do. He who has the wives has the power. He was trying to take the authority, the blessing, the birthright from Shem. Now his descendants are trying to do the same thing. Let's make a Shem for ourselves. They're trying to seize that blessing. Okay? So they're rebelling against God by not calling upon the name of the Lord and trying to make a name for themselves. They're also trying to rebel against the lawful possessor of the Adamic blessing, uh, the priesthood, the authority, which is Shem, the firstborn son of Noah. All right, but it goes, it's more than that though. Number three, to make a name also means, it's a, it's a Hebrew idiom, it means to make a dynasty, build a dynasty. All right, so you've got, you know, the Habsburgs, the Tudors, these are the, how, the, the, the names of the dynasty that reigns okay, in, in these countries. So they're trying to build a dynasty for themselves and Babel is their capital, right? It's their city. It's a secular capital city set up against God and Shem. Now these points here should sound familiar. It has a strong echoing of Cain who founds a city and names the city after his own line, right? His own son. It's a complete uh, revisiting here of the two lines and those that worship themselves, which we, which St. Augustine identifies really as this simplifying, I know, but the city of man, but those who worship God, who belong as citizens in the city of God in the church. It's powerful connections here, right? So they're rebelling against God. They're rebelling against Shem. They're setting up this secular uh, anti-God capital and they got the, pr the presence of the tower. That brings us to number four. So the tower that they're trying to build here is known in the ancient world. Many scholars have identified this as what's known as a ziggurat. A ziggurat is, you, you could Google it and see the images. You, you still have this in, in Iraq. But you basically, a ziggurat is this representation of a mountain, right? Uh, with kind of like these massive staircases that go up to the top. And on the top of this, the ziggurat, this mountain, is where you kind of have entrance into the heavens, right? So what they're doing is building this, this pagan shrine, temple, ziggurat tower that's going to force entry into the heavens on their own without God in prideful, arrogant rebellion against God, all right? So Babel means gate of God. They're trying to force, ent force entrance into heaven. It's the gate of God into the heavens. And this is what Babylon, Babylon me or Babel means, and this is where the city of Babylon is going to come from later on. And there's a play on words. Babel also means he confused, as we're going to see in just a second here, how God responds. God confuses their languages, as everyone knows. So there's this there's this play on words going on. All right. So you can see there's there's a lot happening here. So not only that, there's also a literary device because you would count. 
at least in this translation here, the New Revised Standard Version, they say, let us do X, Y, Z three times. Let us make bricks. Let us build ourselves a city with a tower. Let us make a name for ourselves. So it's really this progression of arrogance and pride as I outlined for you just now. But this threefold occurrence of let us do X, Y, Z, this is a kind of a literary superlative uh, of rebellion. Hebrew does not have good, better, best, right? Um, comparative superlatives. This is why a classic example is uh, when the scriptures say God is holy, 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 that means that he is the most holy, right? He, Hebrew doesn't say God is the holiest. God is holy, holy, holy. Uh, same thing's happening here in, in a parallel. God is holy, holy, holy. He is the most holy. Well, they're saying, let us do this X, Y, Z, meaning we are completely and totally rebelling the superlative sin against God and against Shem, who bears the blessing and the promise of God. Okay? So the Tower of Babel, my friends, it's just this classic image of putting human secular accomplishments before and against God, before and against his commands. It's this classic image of seizing Right, grasping at the blessing, all right, that doesn't belong to you, or yeah, seizing and taking it for yourself instead of maybe even being patient and letting God give you the blessing on His time, not ours. And that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, if you remember in lecture three, all right. So how does God respond to all of this? Well, let's see. Verse five: The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. Notice, by the way, they're called sons of men now. Okay, this is the bad line. Um, he came to, I, I find that hilarious. They're trying to make this tower into the heavens, right? This Babel meaning gate of God. They're trying to get into heaven, but it's pathetic. It's pathetic. God comes down to their level. to Kind of like look at their little measly Lego set that they've been working on together, right? Even our tallest skyscrapers today, they don't get to the heavens, right? And a ziggurat does, pales into comparison to our skyscrapers. It's just a hilarious little subtlety where they're trying to get up to heaven, but God has to come down and see their little Lego set they're playing together. So God comes down, uh, verse 6, and he says, Behold, they are one people and they have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, right? So their, prideful, their, their unity in pride, their unity in sin will get worse. It goes on, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go. Uh, that's great. It's kind of in response to their statements of let us. It's also, incidentally, a very um, strong Trinitarian illusion, right? So just like we saw earlier in chapter one, let us make man in our image and likeness. You kind of have the same repetition here. All right, I'll close parenthetical remark there. Come, let us go down and let us confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. And so essentially, you know the story. This is what happens. So he confuses their language. All right. Now, this is to prevent, scattering them is to prevent them from this shared cooperation in this rebellion. Okay. They originally don't want to be scattered. They say as much in verse four, hey, we don't want to be scattered. So let's build a city. Let's build a name because they're, they want to be unified, kind of like strength in numbers. Let's be unified here in our rebellion. And so that's precisely the answer to the problem. So God scatters them. He confuses their language. There's the play on the word Babel, uh, which comes into English very nicely, confuses their language and scatters them. So they wouldn't be united in these, these perverse evil designs. Okay, and the Catechism points this out. A great little paragraph, 57, says, The state of division into many nations is at once cosmic, 
social, and religious. It is intended to limit the pride of fallen humanity, united only in its perverse ambition to forge its own unity as at Babel. And that's the point here. God scatters them to limit their perverse ambition at sinful unity. God wants humanity to be unified, absolutely. But he does not want humanity in its fallen state to be united in sin and rebellion. Okay, So he scatters them to prevent this continuing unification in sin. Right? This is not what God's design is going to be. God does want us to have access to the gate of heaven. God does want us to be unified in the right way. But the only way we can truly get to heaven, the only true gate, the door to heaven is Jesus. And I got these verses for you in the notes. John chapter 10, verse 9, Jesus famously says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. So the only way to get to heaven is through the gate, the door of Jesus Christ. He says something very similar in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. This, this is, again, a challenge to the modern world where everything's relativistic, right? This is Satan's classic ploy. Uh, you can determine what's right and wrong, what's true and false. But Jesus lays it out. No one gets to the Father. No one gets to heaven but through him. He is the way. He is the door, the truth, and the life. So Muhammad and Confucius and Buddha and your, um, I don't know, your, your, your neighborhood guru, the, these people, these persons and personalities, leaders of religions, they don't get you into heaven. Only Jesus Christ, because only Jesus through his incarnation unifies the heaven and the earthly, the divine and the human. He's true God and true man. He's the bridge from humanity to divinity. So that is, that's just so powerful. If we want to get to heaven, we can't do it on our own sinful methods. And, and this really, I should say, is the application, isn't it? The Tower of Babel is perfectly applied to our own time. We say we can get to heaven by doing, you know, basically we say in the modern world that the number one virtue is just to be nice and tolerant, right? If you're nice, if you're tolerant, you're good to go. Everyone goes to heaven. Essentially, we're building our own tower. We have our own towers that get into heaven, towers to make a name for ourselves, things that we do, we think that are going to be um, our entry, our ticket into heaven, but it's not our ways that get into heaven. It's God's way. We can't get into heaven on our own without God. We can't get into heaven rebelling against God and rebelling against the lawful uh, holder of the authority, the, the birthright, the promise, which in this case is Jesus and his vicars, uh, the, the Pope, those who are in uh, Peter's chair, right? So there's a lot to say there, um, a lot to preach about, but it's very, very applicable. We can't set up our own towers of pride, of rebellion, trying to get into heaven on our own, okay? All right, so let's look at how Babel is reversed because it really is the this great epitome of sin, of rebelling, rebellion against God. And this is not what God wants. He does not want to scatter humanity. He wants to unify humanity. And this begins at Pentecost. Pentecost reverses the Tower of Babel. Uh, what we have here, I mean, we may not have time to read too much of this at all, um, but if you go to Acts chapter 2, verse, it's really the whole, the whole chapter here, but what you have is these 121 individuals, all with Peter, 120, yeah, individuals, uh, with Peter, 
and the apostles and Mary and the disciples. They're there in the upper room. And, and you know the story. Suddenly a, a sound came from heaven, verse 2, like the rush of a mighty wind, and it filled the house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues of fire distributed and resting on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So here they are speaking in other languages. And in verse 5, it says that there were people from every nation under heaven. And at, at the sound of this mighty wind, they come and they gather. And in verse 6, it says they were bewildered because each one heard them speaking his own language. And Peter preaches to them Peter's first address. So scared, cowardly Peter is a completely new man now. He preaches... And they were cut to the heart in verse 37. And they say, what shall we do? Peter says, repent and be baptized. And, and we could talk about this that whole story at another Bible study. But you can see here there's a reversal going on. Because in Babel, you've got this confusion of multiple languages and them being scattered. Well, now at Pentecost, you've got the understanding of multiple languages. And they're not scattered they are united into the one family of God, which is the church. They hear the one language of the gospel being preached by Peter. They believe and they're now unified. They were once scattered and confused. Now they understand, they believe, and they're unified. Okay? So a, number two, a scattered, divided human family is now restored. And it's united into the family of God. That is so, so important because... Any nation, tribe, tongue, um, gender, male or female gender, <laughs> that, that believes that comes into the church, they're now coming from a state of scat being scattered and confused, now believing the one language of the gospel and coming into the church and being united into the family of God. Pentecost continues all the time, every generation. It's, it's just so, so overwhelmingly beautiful. Right. And then finally, number three here, the Tower of Babel, which was once the epicenter of rebellion and slavery. Right, you, you know that they are enslaving people with this bricks for stone and bitumen for mortar. There's some echoes there of the slavery of Israel and, and Egypt. We'll talk about that later as well. Um, but this is the epicenter of rebellion against God and oppression and slavery of their fellow, uh, fellow human beings. It's now replaced in the church. Right, The church is the epicenter of obedience of happiness, of joy, of fulfillment, and freedom, right? We're no longer slaves to Satan's sin and, and to endure eternal death. No, we're freed in Christ. We've defeated Satan's sin and death through the Paschal Mysteries of our Lord. So it's beautiful. Pentecost reverses Babel, and Pentecost continues throughout the life of the church.